If you see someone, kind of look around the room, if you see somebody sitting by themselves this morning, would you just graciously and maybe even a little awkwardly um, invite them to come and sit with you so that we don't have anybody sitting by themselves? Or, uh, or for those who are like a self-described introvert and so you intentionally sat by yourself because you didn't want to sit with people, my request for you is can you fight sort of that natural instinct just this morning? Uh, it's one one Sunday. I'm not preaching next Sunday, so you don't have to worry about this happening a week from now. So if you can do that, I'm going to give you a moment. Just please actually do that. Uh, look for someone sitting by themselves. Give them one of the like one of these things, um, and they'll come over. And uh, and so yeah, let me give you a moment. Feel free to move around the room. It's okay. It's my fault. So I know a little weird, a little awkward. I know, but you guys are the best, and I'm the worst. And I can live with that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. Again, I know that's weird and I know that's awkward for some of us, but uh, in light of our passage today, when I was preparing and just kind of praying for you and praying for our church and our time together, um, I I sensed the Lord kind of prompting me to ask this this morning in light of what we'll be talking about. I'll get to that later on. And so you might, again, hate me right now and we're off to a bad start, but hopefully um, you'll give me the opportunity to redeem this little exercise. And so with that, uh, we're continuing our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, We've been going through it for a while as a church, and last week we began, as Paul appears to, uh, in the book, a new section. And so we have called this section New Community because in 1 Corinthians uh, 11 through 14, Paul begins to address very specifically and very poignantly some of the dysfunction uh, taking place in the Corinthian church when they gather together for worship and for fellowship. And so Uh, Paul has received some disconcerting information, not just in regards to some of the day-to-day going-ons within this church community, but also like some of the going-ons or what's happening when they gather together corporately for worship. Now, um, there are no shortage of opinions uh, concerning what should happen and what it should look like when the church gets together on Sunday morning to worship. Like when the saints gather, there's all these questions that begin to kind of swirl around. Like, should you have contemporary worship, like contemporary music played on Sunday mornings when you sing, or should it be hymnals in an organ? Now, some of you, that may be your background, so you're like, Yes, right? Or, uh, or should it be, as some have said, just acapella? Like no instruments, just the voices. Maybe if you're like me, uh, you're like, I don't know about that one, right? Now there are other questions like, should the lights be turned down real low? Should the lights be turned all the way up? Should the preaching last 30 minutes, uh, 90 minutes, or should you just not put a time cap? Like as the spirit moves, like a preacher's got to preach, so just give them the space to do that. Should you let, like, should that be what happens on Sunday morning? Or should the volume of the, the, the preaching and the music, like, should it be turned down low or turned all the way up? Should we have screens with slides? Should there be none at all? Should we have multiple services or should we have one service or Should we just have live preaching every Sunday or is it acceptable to have sort of like a video feed kind of preaching streamed where it's happening live but not here but somewhere else? Like all these questions uh, kind of come into the conversation when you start to begin uh, talking about the gathering of the saints or today our passage addresses communion and so the Lord's table 
the Eucharist, as it's historically been called. And, and if you think everyone has been in full agreement on uh, what happens at the Lord's table or, or how often we should practice the Lord's table, I hate to be the guy, but I'm going to be the guy. I got to burst the bubble for you. There's been a lot of discussion and a lot of debate, especially in the last 500 years following the Protestant Reformation, uh, where the church sort of splintered over some theological questions concerning the Lord's table, specifically regarding Christ's presence in the elements. And so questions like, well, what happens at the table when we take the bread and take the cup? Is Christ present in any kind of way, physically, spiritually, not at all, at least not in any kind of a unique way? How often should we take communion? Once a week, once a month, once a quarter? These questions have long since been debated and likely they will continue to be debated until Christ comes back, kind of sits all of his children, all of his people in a room and says, okay, let me just tell you how it really is. All right. So we've got books that have been written. We've got a ton of digital ink that's been spilled as innumerable blogs have been posted, all portraying an individual's kind of personal convictions regarding any number of topics when it comes to the gathering of the saints. Now, in fairness, many of those books and blogs are great. They're wonderful. They're accessible. They're clear. They're compelling. They're, they're biblically founded, and they are worth the read and the consideration that they are requesting from us, if that's your thing. There's a lot of books you can read about it. And, and then there are some books that are like a pile of hot garbage that should just be tossed out with last week's uh, leftovers. But the point is, there are some elements of our gatherings that we can, in good faith, have serious conversations about, and even perhaps come out of it not in agreement, like not in consensus. We can, we can say, hey, I hear you and I see you. I just disagree with you. And then there are others that are so central, that are so necessary that to exclude them or to practice them in an unworthy manner meaning in a way that doesn't, doesn't fit, it doesn't square up with, with what's intended to happen, with the character of the practice or the message, like to, to practice it in an unworthy manner could actually invoke the discipline of the Lord. Because God is holy and because God is just and because, because God cares so deeply for his church that to abuse, to misuse, or to practice certain things in an inappropriate manner could actually move him to action in which he would bring about his fatherly discipline. And yet, those same practices, when done appropriately, display the beauty and the glory and the overwhelming grace of God in Christ, his son, to individual people, like to us, to his body, his church, and to those who are maybe on the outside kind of looking in, thinking like, well, what they're doing is a little weird. Well, it, it might be. It's okay. But it displays the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Christ and God's grace to even those looking in. And so with that, we're going to take a look at our text this morning. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, we're going to start in verse 17. Paul says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. 
So Paul kind of opens this section up by simply saying, hey, listen, you're not going to like what I have to say next. Like, this isn't a moment to celebrate. This isn't a moment to kind of pat yourself on the back. Like, hey, at least we got this one right. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Now, uh, I, I think it's important to recall that in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, Paul establishes two really, really important um, realities concerning his relationship with the church in Corinth. First, he's established that he is an apostle. And so he has been given by God a unique authority over the church generally. But then second, secondly, he's established that he is as a father to the Corinthian church, which means that he has a deep personal concern and affection for this specific church, given his, his unique history with them. I mean, he planted this church. He, he lived there for 18 months. He knows these people personally. He knows them by name. In fact, if you, if you think about all of the churches that Paul interacts with in the New Testament, he's probably had the most interaction with the church in Corinth. He loves them like a father would love his own children. And so, with the concern of a father and the authority of an apostle, he says, hey, when you come together, it's actually for the worse, not for the better. Well, why is this the case? Well, because there are division. There's division in the church, which isn't new. It's not new news to us, especially as we've gone through the book of 1 Corinthians. We know Paul's been addressing division in the church all throughout the letter, but the context here is different. Again, he's talking about the corporate gathering, the Sunday morning gathering, and he's, he's not addressing the divisions in the church that are expressed throughout the week, but he's addressing what happens when they gather together as a local church body. And he says in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way, well, there have to be divisions, right? Like there's got to be some divisions in order to, to recognize or distinguish those who really have God's approval, right? Like, like these things are, these are necessary. Now, Paul's not giving affirmation to divisions in the church on Sunday morning when the church gathers. What he's, he's doing is in a cheeky way saying to the ones causing the division, oh, no, no, this is good, right? This is good so that everybody can, can know that, that you are highly favored, so these are necessary, right? So what is the cause for the division Paul is addressing? Well, in verse 20, he gives us the answer. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. No, I will not. And so here's the problem. The church is divided along socioeconomic lines when they gather together, meaning uh, the rich and the poor are divided when they come together as a church. And, and this really plays itself out at the Lord's table. Now, culturally, their practice of communion is different from ours. Uh, we practice communion, as many others do, um, where we've got uh, the elements in the room. We've got the bread and the cup. They're both placed in these tiny little plastic cups that are neatly stacked together so that you're not fumbling them around. When you come, you grab them, you take them back, and they're, they're right there, right? But that's not how this was practiced in the earliest church. It's not how this was practiced in Corinth. In the earliest days of the church, they would participate in a shared meal. And so you would have members of a church bringing whatever they had to offer uh, or, or contribute to the gathering, and all of the food would be placed on a common plate for everyone to share. 
And, and then kind of the climactic moment of the meal was the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine in remembrance and celebration of Christ's death for his people. And so maybe if it helps, uh, you can use the image of church potluck. We've done a bunch of those. Um, but I think a better illustration is probably more like a family style meal where all the food's kind of in the middle of the table and everybody's kind of grabbing and filling their plate and eating their fill. Or if it's your thing, maybe a helpful illustration is like a charcuterie board. Like if you like a good charcuterie board, maybe that helps. I have strong opinions about charcuterie boards and we're not going to get into that today. Um, but it's, it's kind of that idea, shared meal, everybody's taking. So Again, the central moment, and this is the, this is the important part, the, the central moment of the gathering was when they would break the bread and drink the cup. It was the climactic moment for the church's gathering together. And so, yes, they would come together, they would, they would uh, uh, pray together, they would devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles and the reading of God's word. Yes, they would sing in song, and they would encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But again, the, 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 the moment, the big moment in their gathering was this meal where they would break the bread and drink the cup to celebrate the Lord's death on their behalf. Now, why would this be the central moment? I think it's because of what they believed was actually happening in that moment at the table. And so in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So the word that Paul uses here for participation is the word koinonia in the Greek, which means to fellowship with. It means to be in partnership with or to, to, to in a sense, to have a, a, a sense of union with someone or something. And so um, the, the point is that the earliest church believed that in some way, in a mysterious way, something happens at the Lord's table that, that as believers, we are actually fellowshipping with Christ in a spiritual way that is unique and distinct from the rest of the gathering. Like that something happens at the table that doesn't happen when we, when we sing, that doesn't happen when we listen to the word of God taught. Like there's a uniqueness to this moment that in some way Christ is spiritually present through the Holy Spirit at the table. And so when we partake of the bread and we drink the cup, we are actually fellowshipping with Jesus in a way that is unique and sanctifying and wholly different from what happens when we read our Bibles over a good cup of coffee in the morning. That is wholly different from what happens when we kind of gather together for even the rest of, of this, this worship service. Like there's a uniqueness to the table is what the early church believed. If it helps, um, if you're familiar with like Old Testament imagery, Israel in the Old Testament, they were given the temple, right? And the temple, uh, it, it was the dwelling place of God. It, it had several rooms. And so um, as you went further into the temple, like each room, as you went further in, was, was sort of holier than the next. And so you get to the back and you've got in the temple the holy of holies, the most holy room in this holy place. And it was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was where the presence of God dwelt among his people in the Old Testament. It was uh, marked off and protected by uh, a veil or a curtain. And only one person was allowed to go in that room. And it was the high priest. And only he could go once a year to make sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. 
like the most holy place. Now, in terms of the church, now, New Testament, the church, when we gather together and we take communion, it's as if the people of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, are entering into the holy of holies to commune and to have fellowship with the Son of God at his table. Now, many of us come from different church backgrounds and traditions, and we've been shaped by those traditions and shaped by those backgrounds, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But, but following, again, following the Protestant Reformation, you have several different views concerning the Lord's presence at the table that were adopted by different sort of denominational or historical streams. And so like the Roman Catholics, they, they believe something other than what the Lutherans believe, who believe something different from the Presbyterians, who believe something different from the Baptists and the E.V. Freeze and the non-denominational folk. And that's okay. We can have those conversations in good faith. The early church was united on what they believed about the Lord's table. There weren't all these different kind of categories and and fragmentations of it. And so, in fact, the majority, for the majority of church history, everyone believed something unique and sacred happened at this table. And so I say all that to to make the point that the Corinthians too, they they likely would have had the same view of the table that the rest of the early church had. Like they they probably had right on theology when it came to uh, what was going on or what they believed about the Lord's table. In fact, if you notice Paul throughout this passage, he's not going to correct their theology. It seems to be good. It's their practice of the Lord's table that Paul's really concerned with. Which does bring up a point that I know we've said before. And we'll continue to say as we go on, but our, our theology and our orthopraxy or our belief about God and, and as the people of God, what we do and practice, these things are, are intimately connected. And so uh, belief and, and sort of action or what we do, these are, are two sides of the same coin. And a church that has one of these things right and the other one wrong, well, it's, that's, like a, that's a dysfunctional church. There's some growth, some changes that can happen. A church that has both of these things wrong is not a church. And so it's not what they believe that is the issue. It's what they're doing as a church in regards to the Lord's table. That is detrimental. And Paul says that what they're doing is actually more reflective of Corinthian culture than it is the gospel of Jesus. Like one commentator wrote, the abuses that Paul reports occurring at the meal where members go hungry and humiliated were common in Greco-Roman culture and practice. In the Roman context, the banquet becomes a theater of wealth and property, of social distinction and social climbing. Another commentator wrote, in the city of Corinth, a meal was an occasion for gaining or showing social status. It was, in many regards, a microcosm of the aspirations and aims of the culture as a whole. And so a dinner party would have been one of the primary places where one would observe intense social satisfaction. And so what would happen at a Corinthian dinner party if you got the invite in the mail is that uh, you would come in and, and you would have the rich who would, uh, would, would either provide, bring a bunch of food and drink or have it provided for them. You'd have the rich who would just engorge themselves on food and wine off in a little private room so that they didn't have to rub shoulders with the poor folk over in the common room who were left to pick up scraps. So the rich were just eating and eating and drinking and drinking and getting drunk in a, in a, in a you know, private setting where the poor folk come into this dinner party and they're kind of fighting for what's left. 
And this is what was happening in the, the Corinthian church. Like the rich wanted nothing to do with the poor. In fact, they just wanted to kind of showcase their wealth and status, which they did at the expense of the poor people in the church. And so they would have their private food or their private meal Often to a private, often a, a private room, they would eat and eat and drink and drink, get drunk on the wine that was supposed to represent the blood of Christ. And then in the other room, the poor would go hungry in this place where they were just kind of like picking at what, what was left, like if there was even anything. And Paul's harsh rebuke is, hey, don't call that the Lord's table. Hey, don't call that communion. That's not the Lord's table. Don't call this meal sacred when when your practice of it is antithetical to the very gospel it's meant to proclaim. In fact, Paul would later say in this same section, in effect, hey, if you're going to do it like that, just stay home. Don't even get, don't even gather. You've got your own home. You can eat and drink in your own home. Don't come together and call it communion when you're doing that. No, this is not what the table is all about. One commentator said it this way, The Lord's Supper was designed to demonstrate something radically different. It was intended to create, sustain, and display an alternate community, an upside-down social order. Another commentator put it this way, Paul's intent is on one thing, to uproot the Corinthians' meal from the poisonous soil of Greco-Roman conventions and to replant it in the nourishing soil of Christ's loving sacrifice for others. The Lord's dinner is intended to convey to every participant that he or she is somebody precious to God. Like it makes me think of the story in the gospels where Jesus feeds the crowd of 5,000 plus people, really. Got all these folks gathered together hearing uh, Jesus teach. And, And we don't know kind of their individual stories, right? We don't know who they were. We don't know where they were coming from. We don't know where they were going. We just know that they're gathered together. It's getting late and, and Jesus sees them and he has compassion on the crowd. We know that, that uh, after he performed this miracle, they got to eat and eat until their bellies were full. We know that before the meal, the disciples were like, that's a lot of people, Jesus. We don't have a lot of money. Maybe send them home to get their own food, even though it's getting late. And we know that Jesus, his concern and his, his care, his compassion and his grace communicated to every single man, woman, and child in that crowd that I will sustain you. So now we're going to jump down to verse 27, and we're going to come back to 23 and 26 in a little bit. So verse 27, Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so to summarize this section, Paul says that to partake in the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, which again means to to do so or to practice this meal in a way that doesn't square up or match the character or the meaning of the meal, to do that, you bring judgment on yourself. He says, in fact, hey, uh, to the Corinthian church, hey, you know, uh, you know those brothers in your church who are sick? You know those brothers in your church who died? Well, that was the Lord's discipline. 
for their deplorable, for the deplorable way in which they practiced the meal. Now, I do think it's important to note here that that Paul, when speaking of judgment here, is not speaking necessarily of of one's status or standing before God, meaning uh, it doesn't seem that he's making a statement about their salvation. That's not, that doesn't seem to be what Paul's addressing. He's not saying they lost their salvation. Now, let me also say this. I'm not God, so I don't know. There are just, there are things that are beyond my knowledge, and I'm thankful for that. The secret things belong to the Lord. Um, so, so to sit here and say for certain what went down, I don't know. But that doesn't seem to be what Paul's addressing is, is their standing or status before the Lord. It seems that, that Paul's actually making a point more in alignment with Hebrews 12, 6 through 8, where the author writes, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, passages like this sort of shake our sensibilities a little bit because I think we've been conditioned to believe that God's judgment is one of just salvation. And by that, I mean we've, we've been conditioned to believe in a way that if I place my faith in Jesus and I'm covered by his grace, then God no longer cares what I do. So I can do what I want. I can live how I want because it's grace, it's grace, it's grace, and God is unconcerned. Now, Paul rebukes that pretty sharply in Romans 6. But it's because God is holy, it's because God is just, it's because he's righteous, and it's because he cares. Like he cares so deeply for his church that when his children are doing something that robs him of his glory, that hurts themselves and hurts their brothers and sisters, he's going to discipline them in the same way that a father who loves their child is going to discipline them. I think of it like this. Um, I've, I've got a two-year-old. Her name is Taya. She's wonderful and has a very strong personality. And so if I were to take my daughter to a play date with all of her little toddler friends, and she began to behave in a way, well, two-year-olds, are they're already kind of rowdy, but if she began to behave in a way that was uh, harmful for her and harmful for the children around her, I, as her father, who loves her deeply, would have to discipline her. I would have to. Now, let's say in this situation, she doesn't respond to the look, right? Parents, you know what I'm talking about. You say, hey, that, say that doesn't work. Let's say the middle name doesn't work. Let's say a good old-fashioned spanking doesn't work. She continues to behave in a manner that's harmful for her and harmful for others. As her father who loves her so much, I am now resolved to say, we're done, we're going home. We're done. We can't do this anymore. And so in the same way, the judgment that Paul is speaking of here, it's, it's not of a type that's going to change one's status or standing before God as his child. It's a type of judgment that comes as a result of being his child. Now, I wasn't there to know what went down in Corinth. Okay, I, I wasn't there to know the frequency or the severity of the abuse at the table that went down in Corinth, especially with the individuals who died. But I can imagine 
that the severity and the frequency of their abuse at the expense of others in the name of Jesus was so severe that the Lord finally said, I love you too much and I love my church too much to let this happen. We're going home. You're my child and I love you. It's time to go home. And so Paul, in light of all of this, says, hey, you should examine yourself before you come to the Lord's table. Now, how am I to do that? What's kind of the rubric for examining myself before taking communion, as we will do in in a few moments as a church? Well, look at verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, Paul does something pretty remarkable with his language here that we kind of miss in our English translation. So in verse 23, he says, uh, when he, he writes that word delivered, in verse 23, it's the word parodidomy. I, I barely passed Greek. So if I pronounce that wrong, let's all pretend I did. I pronounced it correctly. So uh, it, that word literally means to hand over, to hand over, go a little further down. You've got the word betrayed. At least that's how it's translated in our English translations. It's the same word, parodidomy, which means to hand over. And so Paul's doing something with his language here. He's connecting the handing over of the practice and meaning of the Lord's table to the handing over of Jesus. Now, not simply by Judas, but by the Roman soldiers, by the council, by the people, by the crowds, by Pilate, and this is the one that makes us the most uncomfortable, and by the Father. Like Acts 2.23 makes it clear, the Father handed, delivered the Son over to be crucified so that, as Isaiah 53.12 points out, so that he would bear the sins of many and offer forgiveness to the transgressor. Like it was the Father's will that the Son would be handed over and, and brutally, humiliatingly killed so that sins of any and all who would come to him in faith, they might be fully and forever forgiven. Paul says, listen, Christ was handed over so that your sin, which separated you from God eternally, so that it might be paid for in full. And now I hand over to you this most sacred practice in which we remember and give thanks for Christ's atoning death on the cross for me And for each other. I mean, you may not think this is cool, but I think it's cool. The word Eucharist, which is, again, historically what's been used to describe the Lord's table, it literally means give thanks. Like in this meal, we give thanks for the Father handing over the Son so that he would suffer and die. That we might be reconciled and redeemed. And so at the table, we give thanks for his grace lavished upon us in Christ who suffered and died that we might be reconciled to God, the one for whom we were made. It is the table of grace. And so in light of that, how am I to examine myself? Well, here's a few questions we can ask ourselves. One, do I believe the gospel? 
Like when we come to this table and we examine ourselves, we ask the question, do I believe the gospel? Am I a follower of Jesus? Now, I want to be clear. There are days when I wake up and I do not feel like a follower of Jesus. I I think, gosh, I am struggling to believe this. I'm not talking about how do you feel in a subjective sense. I'm saying, are you hanging your hat or planting your flag in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul for eternity, because if so, this table's for you. Do I sense in myself a need for God's continued grace? Am I unaware of my own need? Like, like do I come to the table thinking, God, I need your grace? Do I love the body and care about the body of Christ the way that Jesus loved and cared for the body? Like, am I concerned with what happens in the lives of the people in Christ's church? Like, do I care about what happens to the people sitting in this room with me? And am I committed to fighting for the unity of the church? Or am I content with or even perhaps causing division among the body? Now, I want to be clear. Our self-examination, it's not, to, it's not meant to be a type of asceticism where we kind of beat and pound ourselves into obedience and repentance. Rather, it's a moment where we get to examine our hearts. And we get to identify our ongoing need for God's grace. Like as one commentator put it, the Eucharist is a sustaining meal for repentant sinners who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, but know that they have fallen short. Or the Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, who should come to the Lord's table? And and the answer it gives is, those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering death of Christ. Or as Tim Mackey a few years ago put it, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, he said, the bread and the cup speak grace to those who know they need forgiveness. They speak comfort to those who are full of sorrow. They speak challenge for those who are complacent. They speak hope to those who have no hope. They speak life to those who feel like they cannot go on. They speak to those of us who have little voices in our head that say, you're not good enough, you're worthless. And they say that you are of inestimable value, that you are more loved than you realize. And then he says, we need to take the bread and the cup. So it's not those who believe that they've got it all together or that they're in some kind of way worthy who should participate in the cup. In fact, Paul would say, yeah, you probably shouldn't. But when we examine ourselves before this most holy practice and we recognize I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, Lord. Well, that is precisely when we come and we eat and we drink and we receive God's grace. And so Paul says to examine yourself, but he immediately says after that, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so church, I think now is as good a time as any for us to participate in communion with one another. So at Huddle Bible Church, we do practice uh, open communion, uh, which means that if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, we want you to participate. We want to invite you to this table with us. Now, I, uh, I do think it's important to say that if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, um, first, I want you to know that I'm happy that you're here. We love that you came to join us this morning. I don't really know why, like what brought you here, but I don't believe in coincidences and I don't believe in accidents and things like that. I believe uh, it was God's desire that you would be here. And so I'm, I'm glad that you are. I'm glad that you decided to join us. Um, 
I would, however, encourage you, again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to abstain from taking this meal. Now, that's not to shame you. That's not to embarrass you. That is not to ostracize you in any kind of way. But again, just in light of what we've just read and preached on, I, I, I genuinely don't think it's in your best interest to take this meal. But perhaps you did come as someone uh, who would say about an hour and 15 minutes ago that you didn't believe in Jesus. And yet in the, in the midst of this service, you've sensed something begin to kind of shift in your soul a little bit. And at first you thought maybe it's gas, but it, it doesn't seem to go away. And so you, you genuinely sense, okay, you know what? I, I may not know all of this. I may not understand all of this, but they're talking about grace and I want that. Or they're talking about Jesus and I want that. Like, I want what they have. Maybe it was five minutes ago you started to think, I want that, I want that, I want that. If that's you, I want to welcome you and invite you to this table. If you've been a believer for more years than you can remember, I want to welcome and invite you to this table. In fact, at the end of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, wait for one another. So we're going to do that. We're going to take communion together. But some commentators suggest that a better translation is welcome one another to the table. So when you have division, people pushing others to the side. Paul says, no, no, no. It's one table. So welcome your brothers and sisters to the table. And so... While I'm no Greek scholar, again, I told you I barely passed. Um, I'm excited to welcome our brothers and sisters to this table this morning. And so as the band plays this next song, you can move around the room. If you're a follower of Jesus, come on up, grab the elements, take them back with you, and I'll give you some instructions afterwards. Before we uh, partake of the table, I do want us to take a moment uh, just to examine ourselves as Paul instructs the church to do. Again, this isn't a moment where we're going to kind of pound and beat ourselves up um, because of where we've fallen short and where we've failed, where we've sinned. We're not trying to kind of force ourselves into obedience and repentance, but instead it's a moment for us personally where we can look backwards in reflection and recognize just how much we need God's grace. And so maybe that's looking back to uh, who you were before you knew Jesus, kind of what God rescued you out of. Or perhaps it's looking back on the last week and just reflecting on the moments throughout the week where it was just so obvious, God, I need your grace right now. God, I blew it so bad right there. Or perhaps uh, you had one of those moments this morning before you even got to church. How could you? I'm just kidding. Right? Perhaps you have one of those moments where you look back on the last like four hours of your day and just think, God, I need your grace. And so um, like I want us to actually take a moment where we are and just spend some time examining ourselves and recognizing all of the ways and all of the areas in which we so desperately need God's grace. So just take a moment. back, confess to the Lord, God, I need your grace. And then I want you to actually kind of begin to shift what you're saying to the Lord, even in your, your mind and in your heart, and just begin to give him thanks. Again, this is the table of thanksgiving, the Eucharist. Give him thanks fact that all of your big I blew it moments have been covered by his grace.
so now I want you to look up and I want you to open your eyes and I actually want you to look around at the people next to you. So maybe they moved over by you because I, I made you do that thing. I want you to look at the people and acknowledge them. Don't just like cut your eyes, smile, wave, give a side hug, do something to, to in, a, in a tangible way, recognize the body of Christ around you because as we take this bread, church, Christ's body was broken for you and for me individually, yes, but it wasn't just for you and it wasn't just for me. It was for his church. It was for his body that it was broken. And so church, this is his body broken for us. Take and eat. Now, as I've already mentioned, there's a lot of division throughout church history in regards to this sacred practice, this holy table. But in Revelation 19, near the end of John's vision, he sees what is described as, or what he describes as a marriage feast, the supper of the Lamb. And in Revelation 19.9, we read, there's an angel talking to John. He says, write this down. He says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that every time we as the church participate in this table, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. And when he does, there will be another feast, presumably at a table. I would imagine a very, very big table. And at that supper, all the division and all the debate that happens today in the church will finally stop because there will once again be one table filled with the people of God and there will be no conjecture about is he present in this meal because the answer will be obviously because I see him. Like I get to see his face. So while we do believe that there's something happening, something sanctifying happening at this table, even beyond that, we believe that this table, this cup, is a foretaste of the meal that we get to have with Jesus when he returns. And so church, this is the blood of Jesus poured out for you and I so that we would have this great hope. Take and drink, all of you. Amen. Uh, well, church, uh, you know, this table says that you and I and everybody in this room is somebody, not a nobody, but a somebody to God because, uh, because we were made in his image and because he loves us so much. He loves you so much that he would hand his son over so that he would suffer and die, be crucified and would eventually come back from the grave, but, but he would do that so that you might know him, so that you might have an eternity with him, so that you might feast at that final supper. Like this table and the gospel say of each and every single one of you that you are of inestimable value to God. And so I want you to take that with you as you go. Before you do go, though, I want to uh, invite James Foster uh, to come on up. So James, if you were here for the announcement earlier, he is our new church planter. Yeah, you can clap. Thanks. Thanks, Ann. Yeah, you can clap for James. Uh, he's our new church planter in residence. And so, uh, as you may know, we uh, are planning a church in Taylor in the future. 
uh, James is uh, going to kind of lead the charge. And so we're excited to have him on staff, uh, Katie, uh, his wife, and their kiddos. Today's their first Sunday joining us. And so we want to welcome them warmly. Um, if you have a, f- a house in Taylor that you're looking to like give away, <laughs> he's your guy. Um, but yeah, we're excited to have them. And so um, if, if you've got the time, we'd love for you to come up, to shake his hand, um, to introduce yourself, um, and just, you know, again, welcome him warmly to our church. And so with that, we love you. Grace and peace, you're dismissed.